Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Uh, good. A little sore. A little sore. Just played your finale eh? in your, in your uh, uh, what did you say, level eight? I think it's level tier eight, beer league hockey, mm-hmm. NCHL, it's called, non-contact hockey league. And yeah, we was a three-game series. We played our final of three games, um, and we lost to the Hot Puckers, uh, one nothing, in the final. And I played. I, I've played defense all year, Bruce. I played my first game at center because uh, we were short players, so I had. To, I played center, and I and I really enjoyed it. It was mm-hmm. fun. Defense is a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of pressure on defense. You make a mistake, and it's in the back of the net. And center, it's a little bit more forgiving. Like you know, I really like that. Well, having an experience at defense uh, is helpful to a center. And I mean, there's lots of defensive situations. And it's, uh, uh, it's not often you see uh, um, a defenseman become a center when they when they move up. They usually become a winger. The, the great Red Kelly, one of my heroes, is uh, the exception that was a uh, Norris Trophy caliber defenseman in Detroit and won four cups. And then was a Frank Selke caliber center in Toronto, I would argue. And I mean, there's no, there was no uh, Selke at that time, but uh, he might have been in that conversation. And he won four cups there, playing <coughs> playing a completely different position on a different team in a different decade, two two dynasties. Well, there's similar positions in a lot of ways. Winning wing is kind of an energy position. You're just going, going, going. Center and defense, you got to make a lot of reads. And as a center, you are essentially like a third defenseman in the defensive zone, you know, covering the middle of the ice. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of similarities. I'm surprised, actually, in some ways there aren't more um, defensemen who have moved to center. And maybe, I guess centers moving to defense is harder because the backward skating is such a key element of defense. And if you don't have a lifetime doing that, it's hard to pick that up at the highest level. But, uh, you know, because it's interesting in European football, right? You often see the striker... As his or the midfielder, as his career goes, goes along, will move back to become a defender. Deeper and deeper, yeah. Deeper and deeper as his career goes along, but you don't see that mm-hmm. in hockey. I think because of backward skating, you'd see it a lot more in hockey. You'd see more centers as defensemen, but they just can't. They just can't make those uh, defensive um, skating maneuvers. You got the rare exceptions like Mark Howe, <clears throat> moved back, like started. That's right. Moved back. Martin right, Sorley, of all people, did that. Um, anyway, that that. But uh, more often, you'll see a defenseman get moved up to to forward. But it's always something that's fascinated me since the days of Red Kelly and Doug Moans and and uh, uh, Jimmy Roberts. You know that that yeah, Jimmy Roberts. And uh, they were kind of fascinating players. And that's when they pretty, had one pretty rare player. nowadays. They had one fewer player on the team, right? Position player, like they they moved from they had two seventeen fewer. dressed. Uh, seven, I looked at some so some. Uh, uh, box scores from the 60s the other day for some reason there was only 17 because of course only one goalie five defensemen 11 forwards okay so, yeah quite a different game one different yeah. at each position I wonder if hockey wouldn't be better off going to that system now um, players Bruce, association wouldn't think of it David I hear you <laughs> let us talk about game 79 of the season okay, the to the Columbus Blues jacket, it's five to two, right? Yeah. Uh, my memory, okay. like I, I watched the first 
two periods before my hockey game. So my hockey game, my own hockey game is much fresher in my mind than this Oilers game, I have to admit. But um, I'll do my best here. Um, <clears throat> Bruce, we'll do our two good things, two bad things, and two numbers podcast. What is your good friend? Good, good thing. Uh, well, my good thing is kind of wrapped up, I think, a little bit with what happened in this, what I would call a trap game. Uh, and that is that the Oilers have already clinched their spot in the playoffs. So this is the first game they've played in a while. It didn't seem like a must win. And they didn't play it like it was a must win. And they, they uh, let it get away from them. But in, in a, to a certain degree, uh, I didn't expect a lot of this game. And, and you know, we got a, um, not a lot out of it. But I don't think anybody got hurt. And I think they, uh, um, you know, check off another game. They've got to win one game of the remaining three. It would have been nice to get that out of the way today. But uh, they just didn't have it in them in the third period. Yeah, it was it was a mediocre hockey game, and Columbus was the better team on the night in terms of um, in terms of a Grade A shots. They had seventeen to the sixteen for the Oilers, according to our preliminary count. And in terms of five alarm shots, the you know the the absolutely right. most dangerous shots, they had ten. They doubled the Oilers. They had ten, and the Oilers had five, wow. which kind of mirrors the scoreboard. <laughs> so Columbus was the better team, and <clears throat> the Oilers didn't have it going on today, Bruce. Um, my good thing, we're doing good things, right? Yeah. Is dry settles goal. It's just such okay. a, it's always such a fantastic thing to see the executioner shot. You know, to see Leon harpoon that puck at the net is one of the highlights of being an Oilers fan right now. He <sighs> is such a fantastic shooter. And this particular example of the executioner shot, Bruce, was particularly lethal Mm-hmm. Um, he took off the head with one chop. I'll say, I'll put it that way, <laughs> <laughs> which was the problem in the medieval times. Uh, anyway, um, he, he put that, he, and Jack Michaels mentioned this he, perfect placement on his shot. It was, <laughs> it was above the goalie's pad right off the post. That is an amazing, uh, that is an amazing ability. And it's not luck. It is not luck. He has the best one-timer <laughs> in the NHL and usually and usually when it's a one-timer, it's a great A shot for other players, right? Mm-hmm. But over the yeah. year, we we mark Leon's one-timers from that spot if he gets full, you know, full wood on it as five alarm shots. Because they go in. We we track this and they go in more than 33% of the time. Other players' one-timer shots don't. He is just a master of this particular art, thrilling art of hockey. And um, it's we're so lucky. We are so lucky to be able to see this play. You know, the master um, with the puck, setting up the master, shooting the puck, and uh, McDavid a dry sidle. I just want to see it in the playoffs, Bruce. Yeah, well, see- we're going to get that chance, David. We're in the playoffs. and Yeah. That's why. But that's still a good thing from Friday. It's my residual still good thing. <laughs> that was my good thing. Uh, that goal... Uh, we didn't have any pictures yet available when I posted the uh, uh, um, the player grades. Uh, so I took a screen grab of Leon's goal, uh, just showing the deadly accuracy of that shot. Nice. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, what's not to like? And that, let's bear in mind that that puck's probably going uh, 
whiz and by there pretty good. If it had been any slower, Merzlikens would have got his glove on it. If it had been any closer to the center of the net, Merzlikens would have got his glove on it. But he rocketed it right into this, you know, what is it? Uh, puck, we call it a puck-sized hole. It's a little bigger than that, but he sure hammered it in there. Indeed. All right, let's move along, Bruce, to our bad things. What is your... What would you say your bad thing was this game? <sighs> well, honestly, I have to go with the whole third period. <laughs> so why don't we do your bad thing? Because it kind of set the start. stage for the whole rest of it. Well, um, as people who listen to this podcast know, one of my pet peeves with the Oilers over the years, for some time now, has been the defensive play of the centers and particularly helping out in the defensive slot. And um, the others have had all kinds of talented players come through the center ice position. But I'm going to say only until McDavid and Dreisaitl came along and, and they're kind of sketchy on this themselves, but there was one really good defensive center, Sean Horkoff, who really knew what he was doing and covered off the defensive slot and, didn't let guys get easy looks from there. He was working with the defenseman. He was doing everything he could. And what we've seen in recent um, years in the playoffs is the orders have been burnt because they're centers. They're, they're very best players. Sometimes are, they're part of the problem. They're not the whole problem. And uh, you get in trouble when you say, well, the orders lost because of McDavid and Settle's right. defense. But you get it wrong if you don't say it was one of six or seven really important things that went wrong with the team is that their star players, including McDavid and Drysdale, didn't get this right. It is a, it is a not, an, not a natural thing to cover the defensive slot if you're um, a star forward or like an attacker of that magnitude. But it is the dirty work, which is absolutely essential to winning in the playoffs. And in this game, it was part of the sequence of pain on the tying goal. It, and it wasn't the, I don't know if it was the main mistake. I mean, the puck's in the corner and the Columbus player beats Cody Cece um, does a spin move, beats Cody CC and puts it out front. So there's the first mistake. CC just gets beat in the corner. Now that's going to happen. The key is that, that these players shooting into the play, they're coming fast, I know, uh, are covered. And and Kulak and McDavid have the responsibility of covering off this player. And Connor's just not to be seen there. He's missing in action. And um, Kulak doesn't make the play either. So again, right. Connor McDavid has, in the last, I'd say in the last 20 games, um, <clears throat> he's been gradually, I would say, gradually improving throughout his career in mm-hmm. terms of his defensive responsibilities. And I would say in his last 20 games or so, in the Woodcroft era especially, he's really applied himself and he's done an exemplary job. And um, he just, he got beat here tonight on that play, as did Kulak, as did CeCe, as did Zach Cassian, who, had, who you know, the goal scorer in the end went right past Zach Cassian as well. So there's a number of players, but this is my, it's my pet peeve, so I focus on it, I guess. Uh, well, given how you played checking line center today, Guy Carboneau, were you in that game? Yeah, I was. You, know, I mean, I, you had to be particularly sensitive to, to that. And uh, I had already, without hearing the results of your game, I had already remarked on it in the player grades. You know, it was, it was uh, the defenseman got outnumbered around the net because the forwards didn't do their job. Yeah, and to win in the playoffs, if this team is going to win, this team isn't the 1980 Edmonton Oilers. They can't win like that. 
they're going to have to win like teams win now. There's not that big of a margin between the teams. There just isn't. It's going to come down to one goal in many games in the playoffs. And if Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and Ryan Nugent Hopkins want to win, they've got to commit themselves to covering off the defensive slot like they never have before in their careers. And I fully expect that we're going to see that. I think we're going to see that kind of commitment. So I'm not, I don't feel like I'm setting them up here to fail. I fully expect them to succeed because they have been. They've been all three of them actually have been doing it a lot better, but not this game. Leon had some struggles too on defense. And, um, you know, they, that's why you lose. That's why you lose to the Columbus Blue, Columbus Blue Jackets. Well, we're missing quite a few key players, I might add, but the ones that they had showed up to play. They play, This was a big game for them. Yeah. They, they want to end the season with a good feeling and beating, beating McDave and Drysaddle and the boys. All After the Oilers that kicked their butts pretty good, like the last five games in a row were like three-plus goal wins by the Oilers. So Columbus had to be hurting. Uh, they uh, they were hungrier in this game. What is your bad thing, Bruce? Well, you got the rest of the period. Yeah, right? kind of the rest of the third period. I don't want to go on and on about it because in some ways less said about this game better. But that happened where with a 2-1 lead, you have your forward sort of not thinking about defense early in the third period. That's not a good sign. Yeah. And uh, then uh, so that that ties the game. Uh, the Oilers had some good chances in the sort of middle part of the third, and then they took a uh, too many men on the ice penalty, which on TV you couldn't see it, but there was an extra guy who was just starting to jump over the boards. Uh, that was acknowledged by Jay Woodcroft that they four guys came off and five went on, and the one guy behind the net with the puck was the sixth guy, and they had to call it because it was a long. You know. CBJ also had six guys on the. Yeah, I think they were changing. Like the Oilers actually had one extra guy came up okay. apparently. And All right. At, so we don't know who that player was, and this I would have docked him, you know, minus one. You couldn't figure <laughs> out from the video who it. Uh, no, because he was just starting to step over the boards, and the and the the camera was way down in the end oh. zone, showing the whole thing. So there was really no detail. I suppose if you froze it and. I don't know. I mean, the reporter's not being in the building anymore. You're probably never going to find out. It's just going to so be a secret. The fiery <laughs> eye of the fiery eye of Sauron misses things now and then. But uh, yeah, yeah. And Louis DeBrusque <laughs> was going off about it. But uh, I was yeah, wondering if that one guy, extra guy, seemed to be starting to move, and I thought, well, who's coming off for him? And then that, they froze the frame there rather than just let it run, and so it was hard to tell. But I mean, two-two tie. With 10 minutes left in the third period, you got total control of the puck behind your own net and you're making a line change and you can't go one for one. I mean, so I just thought the team kind of lost focus and, and the uh, uh, those those were part of the same thing. Then, of course, they did give up the uh, power play goal after 25 kills in a row. That was the one that they couldn't kill. It was, that was, a it was the too many men that, you know, the game winning goals, it turned out. And then the last 10 minutes, the forwards never got one shot on net. The last forward with a shot was Yamamoto with 10 minutes to go in the, in the third. Otherwise, I got some outside kind of shots from D-men, and they just couldn't generate anything. They gave up a two-on-one for the 4-2, and then the empty net goal was a brutal giveaway after a minute of total bumbling of not even <clears> being able to <throat> puck in the zone and keep it there. And Columbus iced 
puck at least twice. There was another faceoff in the neutral zone where uh, where this is where the goal came from, where Bouchard passed it right to Bjorkstrand. And so they just, it seemed like they were doing okay. And I thought, uh, I said to you guys this morning, I wasn't expecting much out of this game and the DMs. And uh, they actually, I thought were, were pretty good through 40, but that third period was... Went to sleep. Yes, uh, you know, I was raving to my wife about Cody Cece's positional play. My wife plays on my beer league team. We were mm-hmm. on the same line today. She was actually my winger and I was the center. All right. uh, anyway, oh. <clears throat> yeah, that was a lot of fun. They both got moved up. She's been set, uh, forward all year. She got moved oh, up. Oh, okay. we, were, we were defense partners in the past, but uh, we've both been, we were promoted. So it's like Red <laughs> Kelly and Doug Moans on the same line. You got it, Bruce. <laughs> Uh, King, they have, both those guys had comb overs, I think. I've just got the old. Okay. Um, Cody Cece, uh, on the, what was it? The um, are we looking at the fourth goal? Yeah, man, he, I, I was raving to my wife about Cody Cece's positional play this year. Mm-hmm. That he's just always making great reads and in the right play, like like he's he's not. Mm-hmm. You know, you you called him a bit. You called him lumbering and in skating, and I think that's a fair comment. Like it's, he's not the smoothest skater out there. He's not a slick skater. You know, he's not even close to Scott Niedermeyer. He's like half of that. He he is a bit lumbering. I think that's fair. Now that I think of it, when, and um, lumbering defensemen can be good things. They can be good things, and when there's to be anyway, on he, skates. he this was situational. He's trying to. They need a goal, right? So he's trying to get a goal. This is three minutes left in the game. They they need a goal. So that partly explains the bad pinch. But, man, that was one bad pinch by Cody Cece on that fourth goal. He just was not even close. And um, the break, the two-on-one happens because of that. As much, you know, Nuge lost the battle on the boards as well. But, um, yeah, Cody did not come close on that one. And again, his job might have been in that moment to gamble. Even if the gamble's only a 30-70 gamble as opposed to a 70-30 gamble, you know? Down by a goal, three minutes left. Yeah. Is when you start to pinch and, and uh, take extra yeah. chances because, uh, you know, even if you're more likely to give up the goal against, the worst result is if nobody scores for the whole rest of the game. you got to try and make stuff happen when you're, you when you're trailing. And he tried and... Uh, uh, got beat and then uh, Yamamoto was a high forward but not high enough and frankly not fast enough he had no chance in that foot race up the ice on the two on one whereas early in the game we'd seen Dreisaitl and uh, I think it was this game McDavid uh, turn a two on one into a two on two just by how an ass on the defensive back check and Yamamoto just doesn't have the speed to do that and I think he too was maybe to be the, the F1. He was a little deeper in the zone to start with, and he just couldn't catch. Uh, was it uh, 96? Wasn't it? Um, I honestly Mosevich. don't think Yamamoto realized he was F1 until it was too late. Like it right. was a very tough play. Like you know, the mm-hmm. pinch comes and it's like kind of unexpected. Nuge has the puck, then there's a the puck's lost. Quick pinch, and it's like, oh, I better get back. A tough play. Well, Here's a question for you, David. Uh, when was the last time that we uh, 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 we nabbed somebody in the uh, in the uh, scoring chances for a bad pinch? Been a while, eh? 
Yeah. They're, they're a lot they, less they common than they up. used to be. Oh, my goodness, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, they were a recurring, you know, Tyson Berry. This has been a, he's, since he's cut them out generally, like he still makes, he might make the odd one, but mm-hmm. since he's cut down, um, that's been a big factor. Nurse, I think Nurse has made a few actually, um, maybe, but it's, it's, it used to be much bigger feature and I, I can probably get you the answer. I'll get the answer to your question here. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, well, my answer to that answer is, uh, Jay Woodcroft and maybe Dave yeah. Hansen. And that the high forward is usually in position and pre- prepared and ready to cover for that pinching defenseman. Yeah. And you don't see many two-on-ones. Even when that guy gets beat, it's, you know, you got a second guy back. And I think they're, All right, I think they're way more diligent to that task. Uh, looks like there's been... 65 all season mm-hmm. and um 65 bad pinches that's quite a few that's I, i'd have to compare it to last almost season one, almost one a game oh no um no this isn't correct because i mean okay. i can't i can't give you the numbers right now i got okay. i'm gonna have to but it might be worth a post mm-hmm. because it's um i i agree with you it's a it's one of the facets of the Oilers game that that has changed and um thank goodness it's changed <laughs> Because that was killing the, them. It's certainly not that the D-men are less aggressive pinching. They're going deep. They're going into the hash marks, sometimes right in almost to the icing line uh, on the pinch because they're confident that someone's got their back. And you see it. There's, you know, when they do go up, there's <clears> almost <throat> always there's some forward rotating into position. And often the puck goes back to that forward if the defenseman even saws off the the pinch. The forward's in good puck support. He's in, he's in a great spot. Okay, so there's been 24 all year. Mm-hmm. 24 bad pinches leading to grade A shots against, mm-hmm. okay? Right. The last one was game 65 against yeah. the Calgary Flames. And it was against CeCe who did it. <laughs> it was again Cody CeCe. And uh, he actually did... Okay, that's yeah. That was a nine-five loss. Yeah. And then yeah. since then they went twelve games, went ten-one and one, and got into the playoffs without one bad pinch, resulting in a scoring chance against Grade A scoring chance. Yeah, I think uh, nice. what game did Wood, Woodcroft take over game forty? Uh, forty game forty-five was his first. Game forty-five. Mm-hmm. So there was uh, in how many games is he coached now? Uh, this was 79, so this would be uh, 35 games for Woodcroft. So in the 35 games under Woodcroft, there's been six bad pinches leading to grade A chances against. And then there was and 20 the, for the 44 games of tip. Uh, eight, 18. 18? So there's 24 in total. 24. 24 in total. Six and uh, 44. Yeah, so considerably more. Not quite triple the rate, but tending yeah. in that direction. Yeah, exactly. Which is that's really significant because because you make a bad pinch, and it leads almost invariably to a two-on-one or an odd-man rush, and, and often a goal against. So I, I'm going to probably do a post on this. This is an interesting uh, thing to look at because it's. That's, mm-hmm. I was going to ask you this question before this game, and then of course I wound up grading that bad pinch, but you have to call it. And and I was thinking, geez, I can't remember the last time 
but I saw this code. <laughs> yeah. So. Good stuff. I'm glad. Because mm-hmm. that was a yeah, nightmare. No, it was a big problem. They turn over the puck in the offensive zone, it'd be a freaking two-on-one. The defense yeah. wouldn't cut out the pass, and buddy slam it in the net. It happened way too often. Way too often. In the last days of Dave Tippett, I mean, it was just well, endemic. It was a, is that the right word? Pandemic? Whatever. Lots. It was lots, Bruce. Okay, um, number. I would say throughout most of the salary cap era. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> For the orders, the decade of darkness plus, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, what's your number? Uh, I'm going to go with 118, and that is the magic number for uh, Connor David's new career high uh, with two assists uh, this afternoon, two primary assists, two really nice passes, uh, one to Evander Kane, one to Leon Dreisel. You pass the puck to the right guys, you, you're going to get assists, and uh, McDavid gets a lot of them. And so now he's established a new career high. He's four points up on Jonathan Uberdo for uh, uh, the scoring lead. And this is an exciting race that's going to go down to the down to the wire with all the guys that are in the race seemingly hot. Except yeah. Austin Matthews. Except Austin Matthews. The Austin Matthews for uh, um, most valuable god of the hockey universe. Has died down a little bit, Bruce. He's he's only got he hasn't scored in a while. He's got 58 goals. He's been stuck there for a while. 102 points for Matthews, and um, my number is 55. Every mm-hmm. time Leon Drysaddle scores, he sets a new high for himself, and now he's up to 55 with his executioner shot today. So um, he's only three back of Matthews. Now Matthews has played fewer games due to injury, but. That's hockey, right? If um, you don't play the games, you can't score the goals. So we'll see Leon if, if Leon. Too. Leon missed the game as well. And we'll see if Leon can somehow um, get hot and in these final two games surpass Austin Matthews. I I would love that. I think it's unlikely, but it's not impossible, Bruce. It is not. Do they have three games left? They have three games left. Three games. Okay, goal a game. And it's possible that they don't address everybody for the last game, but I would think if McDavid's going after the Art Ross and Drysdale's going after the uh, Rocket Richard, that they wouldn't take kindly to being sat out. That's a a legit physical reason. Yeah. Uh, I think think if Connor gets, um, if he wins the Art Ross and the, and the, and, um, He's quite a bit ahead. Like the, I don't know who who the contenders are. There's so many. It seems like there's a number of good contenders for the cons for the um, Hart Trophy for the NHL's MVP. But the Matthews talk has died down because Austin Matthews has been um, now. If he gets 60 goals, that might change things for him. But um, I think McDavid has a good shot at the Hart Trophy, uh, and I think he would be a deserving candidate. This year, I think he, in the end, has been the Oilers' most valuable player and um, the best player in, in hockey. Most valuable player on his team, best player in hockey. I'd go with McDavid. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think the talk has died down because Matthews missed, was it three games? And then yeah. he came back and didn't get any points in his, in his first game back at uh, Florida last night played good okay. uh didn't didn't score 
Um, a good player. Like these are all. Oh fantastic. yeah. Oh, he's fantastic. He is. No. Yeah, he is. We like he. We're a little cheesed off at Edmonton because it's always Austin Matthews, Austin Matthews. But man, he is a fantastic hockey player. So. Well, I don't know. I mean, in my lifetime, uh, was it twelve times an Oilers won the uh, won the uh, Hart Trophy. Oh yeah. And. Uh, in my lifetime, of course, I was, uh, I'm relatively young, being born in 1955, there have been a grand total of zero Toronto Maple Leafs to win the Hart Trophy. The last one occurred when I was in the womb. Ted Teeter Kennedy won the 1955 Hart Trophy. So I, I don't get the jealousy. Like, I, I get Toronto being jealous of Edmonton, but... You know, they can have Austin Matthews. He's a great player. He's fun to watch. Ted Kennedy. To cheer against. <laughs> Ted Kennedy, who I never saw play. Um, he, it, it, there's there's a project, there was a hockey project recently, or a few years ago, where they went through and they awarded Conn Smythe trophies in the past, yes, retroactively. And when you do that, and you include, if you just, if, you, if you're looking for um, heart, heart trophy, voting how players mm-hmm. did in Hart trophy voting and in con smith voting including these retroactive con smith trophies so the mvp of the playoffs mvp of the regular season and you award c- career points based on that ted kennedy ends up in, i think 10th overall in the nhl all time in terms of because he, he he won a couple retroactive con smith trophies and um he was a hell of a like i don't know anything about him he wasn't much of a scorer. Like he was not. Uh, well, he was a very he good was a scorer. Leader. But he Teeter was a, the leader. Yeah. He was some about him that people watching hockey at that time thought this is the best player, two-way hockey player, for a period of time in the NHL, and he's he's one of the NHL's all-time greats. And he's I think probably it's funny coming out of Toronto to say this. I think he may be the most underrated hockey player in NHL mm-hmm. history because most people don't have never heard of Ted Kennedy. Well, even that MVP was kind of odd. He, he won it sort of as a as a career lifetime achievement award because he was announcing that he was retiring at the, the end of that season, and the reporters thought, "Well, he deserves to get a trophy before he retires. Let's put him in on." The... Now, that's maybe a quick and dirty version of the story, but he it, he certainly didn't earn it based on his performance in that season. But he'd been Is a great right? player over his whole career. Yeah, it was it was really a really a strange. Thing. I haven't read the sto- story for a while, but it was, uh, it was, uh, well, he, he retired for a year and then came back and, and then he came the back season. after all this. Yeah. Probably yeah. So he days. finished second in hard voting one year, fifth, fifth and first. Yeah. So, and you're right in his last year in hockey, he, he got, like, 10 he got goals. <laughs> 52 points in 70 games and yet he won the hard trophy. So I'm not yeah. going to take that away from him. Like, there was something about this player at that time, you know, mm-hmm. there was only so many people voting in Toronto, right? This right. isn't, so there was something about him mm-hmm. that people thought was pretty special as a hockey player. And particularly in the playoffs, I think he was one of these guys who repeatedly came up big. Oh, he, Silaps and Max Bentley were the three centers who were so good in 1947, 48, that uh, Dick Beddoes thought that Wayne Gretzky wouldn't have been able to play center on that team because <laughs> Those three were so great, and they really were great. That's like probably one of the very greatest trios of centers. 
Well, in uh, nine playoff games, Ted Kennedy had eight goals and 14 points. So that's uh, Gretzky-like numbers there. That's pretty darn good. Um, so uh, he won five Stanley Cups, mm-hmm. and he retired, as we say, he he retired at age, uh, um, well, his last 29, year 29, the first time, yeah. 29, the first time, and then he came back and played one more year, as a th- half a year as a 31-year-old. So. He was 19 when they w- he won the first cup, 1945. It was just before the end of World War II. And a whole lot of top NHL players were overseas. And the whole league was in a jumble. That was the year uh, Maurice Richard got 50 and 50. I mean, there, there was a real sort of disparity in competition. Yeah. Uh, so, and Ted Kennedy came in and wowed him and, and really led Toronto. As a, as a 19-year-old, he scored 29 goals yeah. that year. And then uh, uh, in the playoffs, seven goals led the league, seven goals in the playoffs as a teenager. And he had a bad year after the war, and uh, Con Smythe, who had been off in Europe in the war, he was a fighting man, uh, Con Smythe. Uh, he didn't like him at first, but uh, he grew to like him, and they won three cups in a row, and then they won another, uh, an extra one in 1951, the uh, Bill Barilko Cup. So they, they had a... Wonderful history throughout that time, which I've I read a, used to read Leaf books. I was a Leaf fan as a kid, so I know that history. Conn Smythe, that's a famous name. I'm just listening to the Moby Dick audiobook. Trophy named after him. Conn <laughs> uh, Smythe, indeed. Uh, I'm listening to the Moby Dick audiobook, and of course, in this book, there's this incredible portrayal of Captain Ahab, um, this madman who's obsessed with killing the whale. And, and when I hear some of these old hockey coach names and mm-hmm. some of the stories around them, I always wonder, like, there should be a Captain Ahab award <laughs> in the NHL for the maddest coach uh, each season. Now, they're not like that anymore. You know, they were. it was much more of a type in the past, you know, these guys who were just obsessed and nasty. Probably Eddie Shore is the, the, mm-hmm. the best version of that kind of coach and manager was Eddie Shore, who was, there's all kinds of famous stories about him, like tying the goalie to the posts. And Although I just heard a as story today. As a player, today, as a coach, and as a manager, there's all kinds of stories about Eddie Shore. I just he heard a story about... He was the Ty Cobb of hockey, Eddie Shore. Yeah, yeah, sharpened his spikes. <laughs> um, I just heard a story about, uh, it was Jerry Johansson, who was on Elliot Friedman's pod and Jeff Merrick's podcast, talking about how something about Bill LaForge killing a live chicken in front of his team, ripping it apart. Oh. That's the gist of it that I got. I don't know. Maybe that's not the story. That's where Alice Jerry Johansson didn't idea. seem to seem to want to get into the details too much of that. Uh, there are some crazy coaches. Yeah. The Ahab Award, Bruce. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you've got your game grades game grades posted. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I, I didn't rip anybody too bad because I don't think they deserve to be ripped at this point. You know, this ended yeah. a four-game winning streak under. Uh, 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 Jay Woodcroft, they played 35 games. They've had two five-game winning streaks, a six-game winning streak, and now a four-game winning streak. That's a pretty nice set, set of streaks. You're not going to win them all. So they Indeed. didn't win this one. When do they play next? Is it Tuesday? Tuesday at Pittsburgh. All right. Well, Bruce, thanks for talking tonight. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.